You're listening to the Canadian Investor Protection Fund podcast channel. Here we connect with industry leaders and experts in the financial sector. The current situation in Canada and the rest of the world is facing due to COVID-19, a global health crisis, has upended the world as we know it. International borders closed and countries went into lockdown. The capital markets were rocked by the uncertainty and the economic downturn caused by this pandemic. Hi everyone, and welcome to the CIPF podcast series, Investor Protection in a Time of Crisis. I'm Martin Daniel, Senior Vice President at Ernst & Young. It's my pleasure to be your host today. Our topic is Lessons Learned from Past Crises. While the global pandemic has been unprecedented in many ways, this is not the first financial crisis that SIPC and CIPF have experienced during their long history. During today's podcast, we'll explore with our guests lessons learned from past crises and how those can help us navigate through the current COVID-19 developments. My guests today are Ken Caputo, General Counsel at SIPC, the U.S. Securities Investor Protection Corporation, and Roseanne Roussel, President and CEO of CIPF, which is the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. SIPC and CIPF are compensation funds in the U.S. and Canada, respectively. They both aim to protect investors in the event of an investment dealer insolvency. It's great to have both of you in this podcast, Ken and Roseanne. Thanks very much. Good morning, Martin. Thank you. On that note, we should get started immediately. Uh, I will uh, put these questions to Roseanne and Ken. For those who are not familiar with SIPC and CIPF, can you both briefly describe the roles and mandates of your respective organizations? Thanks very much, Martin. It's Roseanne. Um, CIPF was created about 50 years ago, actually 51 now, uh, by the securities industry in Canada. It is overseen by the provincial regulators, and its mandate is to return property to clients of member firms if they become insolvent. And those member firms are members of our self-regulatory organization, um, IROC, the Investment Industry Organization of Canada. And thank you. Um, CIPIC provides protection to customers of CIPIC member brokerage firms that fail financially and have to be liquidated. Uh, it oversees the liquidation proceeding and, and CIPIC works with the court appointed trustee to return customers' securities and cash as expeditiously as possible. And we are in our 50th year, just behind our friends in Canada. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, looking at SIPC and CIPF experience during the past financial crisis, would you say there's a connection between periods of market turmoil and member insolvencies? There seems to be a link in some cases, or maybe a bit of a lag, in reflecting on the insolvencies that CIPF has experienced. Um, 1987 was um, a somewhat momentous year for CIPF because that was the failure of Osler. It was also the year of Black Monday. Um, Osler was the largest insolvency that CIPF had experienced to that date. Um, in subsequent times, um, following the tech boom, we did have two insolvencies. One, I think, that was directly impacted by the downturn in uh, the value of technology stocks. Um, but since then, we've also had other periods where there's been market disruption, but not necessarily any insolvencies particularly recently. And I'd attribute that basically to a very strong regulatory system and very frequent and robust reporting that goes on between the member firms 
um, and the self-regulator and ourselves. I would say that there's a, uh, you could make the argument that there's a connection. In, in 1987, after the October market break, we were called upon to liquidate the only New York Stock Exchange member to fail, which was uh, a firm called H.B. Shane and Company in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Then after the tragic events of 9-11, you know, the markets closed and and when they reopened on the first day of trading, they fell around 7%, I think. And then by the end of the week, the Dow was down over 14%. The S&P lost more than 11%. And shortly thereafter, SIPC was called upon to commence its largest case ever up to that point, which was the liquidation of the clearing firm, MJK Clearing, in Minneapolis. And then, of course, uh, many of us vividly recall the financial crisis of 2008, which saw the failure of Lehman Brothers, which became the largest broker-dealer failure of all time, and of course, the largest SIPA liquidation. So I'd say, yes, I think there is a correlation. I think I would add, though, as well, that what's interesting to me is the, the challenge of event risk, which is so unpredictable, and it can be anything from an external force um, to tragically fraud. And I think those are circumstances where we really don't get you know, much of a heads up. It's just having to be ready to react. Thank you very much, uh, Roseanne and Ken. Um, looking more closely at the crisis we're facing today, how is this crisis different than the ones you've faced in the past? I think when we think of crises, we think of markets in a severe downturn. Um, and certainly we've had that in this instance, but a very um, you know sharp recovery with high volume of trading, and so it's it's interesting that you know the market is strong and commission revenues are strong and retail revenues are strong, so it, it's just a very different atmosphere, shall I say, from previous times, and we're all working remotely. I think what makes this. Uh crisis today so different is um, two things, really. We have um, just today a tremendous uncertainty, uh, a pervasive uncertainty. People can't be certain about much of anything, um, whether they are, have a job or pay the rent or whether schools open or stay open. And, you know, I think the list goes on and on. Um, and, and the main undercurrent today is this pervasive uncertainty about whether we'll even be safe. Will we? What about our parents, our friends, our loved ones? Um, you know, I can't remember a time when we were so uncertain about so many things. And the twist to that is that today, when you, if you were just to look at the financial markets, they seem to be going along quite well. Markets um, remain fairly strong, and there does not seem to be, at least at this point, any feeling of impending doom or crisis of confidence that we've seen in the past, in past crises. Thank you, Ken uh, and Roseanne. Um, going on to our next topic, research has shown that in times of crisis, responsive steps or actions taken can determine the severity and length of the crisis. Can you describe specific actions that CIPF and SIPC undertook during these past financial crises? I think every time there's a, a sort of shock to the system, um, one of the things that the SRO does is immediately gather more data and more frequent data from the members. So that equips them and ourselves 
uh, to be better informed um, on a current basis about the condition of each firm. From CIPF's perspective, we also um, use our credit-based model to stress test the financial results of member firms even beyond the early warning measures that are in place. And we also look at our fund size and our resources to try and make sure that within the assumptions that we already have and even on a stress basis, um, that we have enough resources should the need arise. You know, I, I believe that one of the most important things that CIPIC has done in past crises like Lehman Brothers or the MJK clearing case is to facilitate the bulk transfer of accounts. Um, in the Lehman case, you know, the parent company filed its bankruptcy petition on a Monday, September 15, and we worked with regulators and others throughout the week to prepare for the failure of the broker dealer on Friday. And then after the bankruptcy court approved the sale order in the wee hours of Saturday morning, we worked throughout that weekend to begin the process of transferring in bulk the accounts of Lehman's customers to Barclays Capital and to another acquiring broker-dealer called Newberger Berman. Um, so it was largely as a result of those bulk transfers. And uh, I, I don't, it should not go unnoticed, of course, certainly the excellent work performed by the trustee, Jim Giddens, and his straight team at Hughes Hubbard. Um, every one of the more than 110,000 Lehman customers with approved claims has received back the entire contents of their securities accounts. And that totals more than $105 billion today. So a bulk transfer provision in our statute gives us tremendous capability. Well, I certainly agree with that. The the Some of the transactions I've been involved with, uh, the, the best and fastest way to do this is through a bulk transfer. And I totally agree with you that it facilitates and allows people to access uh, their capital as soon in a very rapid manner. Rosanna, do you want to add something? Yeah, I think communication is probably pretty um, key and important as well. I think that, you know, it's important that investors know that these compensation funds exist, what their role is, and that their assets will be moved um, to firms that are operating so that they can access them. And, you know, we keep learning over and over again, I guess, how frequently and how simply we need to communicate our message and we try to do that you know in a number of ways primarily through our website um, but it's particularly relevant in times of an insolvency or an unsettled market thank you uh, moving on to our next topic uh, are there any lessons learned by sipc and cipf from these past crises that are applicable to the situation we're faced with today well i my observation would be that Everyone is different <laughs> and it's all about being as ready as possible. Um, you know, whether you call it a, you know, a to-do list, a playbook, whatever, having the contacts for appropriate professionals, legal and trustees, um, having staff ready. If, you know, you've brought on staff that haven't had the insolvency experience, running simulations become very important. Um, I'd say also from the board of directors, keeping the board ready and confident that they understand their role when there's an issue and, um, and staying in touch with regulators who oversee us and, you know, give us our mandate so that, you know, they understand what we're doing and what we may need to come to them for. 
Roseanne has it exactly right. Uh, the ready is the key word that comes to mind for me. I mean, one of the lessons I've learned over the years is that the organization has to be ready to react, to take action as necessary, and, and sometimes without much warning. Uh, you know, Roseanne will remember as well, and, and you know, when we learned about MF Global failing, we received a call from the Securities and Exchange Commission in the wee hours, of the, it was 5.30 in the morning. And we, so we had to work very quickly to assemble our team and file our papers. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, we had done all that, traveled from Washington, D.C. to New York and obtained a court order commencing the liquidation proceedings. So you know, given all the uncertainties we talked about and the unknowns today, we stand ready to act if called upon. Excellent. Thank you both. Um... Let's shift gears a bit to talk about member insolvencies. Uh, can you both tell us about a member insolvency that's had a significant impact on shaping your organization? Any specific lessons learned from that, from those items that you'd like to discuss with us? I'd pick up again on the MF Global insolvency. I think for me, there were a number of things that came from that insolvency. The first was the importance of the MOUs or the memorandums of understanding that we have with other compensation funds around the world. Um, you know, as Ken said, these things happen very quickly. You have to be able to pick up the phone if something's happening cross-border and already have a relationship with people that you can talk to. You don't want to be introducing yourself or trying to figure out who those contacts are in the midst of a, of a crisis. And then as well, if you're going cross-border, I think what we were all reminded of is the bankruptcy laws and legislation in our own country are different from those in another country. And again, it's important to understand what those might be and, and how they might impact the estates on both sides. In MF Global, what um, was particularly interesting on sort of day one of having a trustee in place was understanding the location of records. Um, MF Global was an affiliate of the US company and not unlike many businesses used to its advantage the opportunity to have uh, the US affiliate run the books and records particularly as the um, primary trading uh, party for trades in the US. And so when it came time for the trustee to go in and take control of the records, they weren't located in Canada. So that led to rule changes at the regulatory level to ensure that there were always accessible um, copies of records available within the country. And then, you know, the next thing that was relevant were the custodial relationships. So again, for all sorts of good business reasons, um, member firms and their sort of corporate entities centralize a lot of things, including um, you know, who has the legal relationship with a custodian. And it became quite relevant in this instance that uh, Bank of New York Mellon had a relationship directly with Canada as opposed to it coming through the US affiliate. And so it's been something that we've um, kept top of mind as we've assessed what we would call location or custodial risk. Um, as you know, the world becomes ever more global and people are investing in many different countries. So I'd say we, we took away a lot of, um, of good lessons and, and sort of looking forward from the MF Global experience. Uh, there are two others I think that have to be mentioned when you talk about CIPIC's program. And of course, I'm talking about Lehman Brothers and uh, the Bernie Madoff case, both of which were in the same year, 2008. Uh, Lehman in September 
Bernie Madoff case began in December. Uh, and as I said earlier, Lehman is the um, largest broker dealer failure ever. It involved more than 110,000 customers and hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, this was a failure brought on by an economic crisis. And, and, and given all, all the customers that have been made whole, I believe what we learned from that foremost is that our program of investor protection works, even when dealing with what many believe to be uh, an existential crisis. Uh, the Madoff case, you know, it's entirely different. This is the biggest fraud, the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. Um, and as you see in that case, just in a different way, uh, how the program works. I mean, in Madoff, the trustee and his counsel started with very few assets, uh, a ledger that involved years and years of fraudulent transactions. Uh, none of Madoff's activity was legitimate. And from there, the trustee and his team have worked to bring back money into the estate to pay the customers who were Madoff's victims. And he's been really remarkably successful. I mean, the total value of claims in the Madoff case is somewhere around $19.4 billion. I mean, Martin, just think about that for a second. You know, $19 billion is still a lot of money. And the trustee has recovered up to this point more than $14 billion. He's recovered approximately 75%. And that is frankly, truly remarkable. And, you know, they're still working today to bring in more. So I would say both of these cases, which remain open and progressing, have been exceptional challenges uh, for us. And yet, I have to say, the SIPC team, really an extraordinary group of some very talented people, has responded so well. They've, they've been just terrific. Well, I, I totally agree with you, Ken. I think in 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 insolvencies, uh, the issue is how fast you can you can go. In fraud, the issue is are you able to recover anything, and how and how fast can you do it? And in most fraud cases, uh, there's very few payments that are made, and uh, there are a few exceptions to that. And obviously, the Madoff case is is uh, really highlights uh, how skills and expertise uh, come into play into moving quickly. Um, We'll move on to our next question. Uh, although every insolvency is unique, have you seen any common themes among the different insolvencies you've faced over the years? There are some factors that are identical or similar in every case that you know all your, your respective teams can use uh, to deal with those matters. I think things have changed over the years. I, I mentioned event risk as one of those unexpected ones. I think that um, governance, the issue of you know, whether an organization um, is vulnerable to owner-manager override would be one that would come to mind for some of the smaller firms. And then I think as well, firms that um, set off on a different course, either because of a change of management or a change of business line, possibly not necessarily with, you know, the, the strength or the underpinning that they require. But Again, I would sort of reflect back on today's reality, which is a very strong and robust um, regulatory system such that, you know, in theory, given that we look at these numbers with such frequency, no one should ever become insolvent. There are so many checks and balances and opportunities to, you know, um, close a firm down without an insolvency or, you know, allow them to merge or, or find, you know, new capital. So I, I think it's, it's really watching carefully beyond the numbers um, into the business, the people running the business, and the business plan and orientation that they have, and the governance. 
I'd say that the most common theme among our cases uh, is the theft of customer property. That's that's the driver of most of our cases. They're not like Lehman or MF Global, which are major failures driven by economic conditions. Uh, that happens. Those crises do occur, but they're more like Madoff, but just smaller. I mean, even the MJK clearing case, which I mentioned earlier, was driven by an offshore fraudulent scheme that deprived the broker-dealer of necessary capital and caused the firm to fail. So theft remains the main driver uh, of our or cause of our cases. And um, what's curious is that, honestly, Martin, to think about it, is why we haven't had more of them recently. If you think about it, there's been uh, very few cases that have been commenced over the past few years. And I have to say, I, I think some of the credit has to go out to our, the regulators, uh, certainly at the SEC and, and at FINRA and others, I mean, who are clearly doing a good job of protecting investors. That's great. Um, all right, and we're gonna move on to our final question. Um, Let's put an investor lens on the past crisis. What lessons do you believe investors have learned from the past crisis? We, we've looked at it on the, on the regulator side. Now let's look at the investor side. So what do you think they've learned? Hmm. I'm not entirely sure what they've learned, but I know the questions that we you know, always ask them to think about um, when we get questions from investors. Um, in the first instance, you know, who, who are you dealing with? And by that, I mean, the regulatory process has a number of different uh, registrant categories. And there are also people um, out there who are offering investment opportunities without any sort of regulatory oversight at all. And so it's, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, is the classic situation, um, which takes you to sort of, you know, what have you invested in? Do you have a plan? There's, there's nothing worse in times of market turmoil than not having sort of thought through what your plan is and what your risk appetite is. So I think it's important for investors to be thoughtful, whether they're do-it-yourselfers or investors working with professional advisors to understand the importance of having a plan. And then from a compensation fund perspective, it's, you know, where are the assets that you purchased located? And how are they controlled? Do you have direct access to them or do you access them through an intermediary such as a securities dealer? Um, and if that's the case, then what happens if something goes wrong? Um, you know, is there compensation fund coverage uh, as in the case of CIPIC or CIPF? Um, we're entering a world with new kinds of investments that will, you know, cause us all to have to reflect on things like coverage and location and safety. We're heading into a, you know, a cyber crypto world, et cetera. Um, you know, we're in an environment right now where precious metals are rising. You know, are people buying precious metals? And if so, how and, and where are they residing, et cetera? So I think it's, it's really trying to get investors to focus on being thoughtful, not to, not to react, but to have a plan and, um, and to ask themselves these questions. You're hitting it exactly on the head, Roseanne. Um, so I, I, just to sort of pile on to that thought stream, I mean, I think investors can take away two lessons. And one is if you're investing in a U.S. brokerage firm, make sure it's a CIPIC member. Go to our website 
sipc.org, and check. Customers of our largest firm failures over the years have consistently been made whole. And that includes not just Lehman Brothers, but also MF Global and MJK Clearing and Adler Coleman Clearing. And, and I think the second lesson is check your account statements. Don't just ignore them or put them in a drawer. I mean, look to see what you believed you had, what transactions you intended, but they're actually recorded on your statement. And, and if something is wrong, don't just call the firm, put it in writing, document your situation. I mean, this is likely your nest egg, what you've worked so hard to grow and, and earn. Uh, investors need to be diligent in examining their account activity. Yeah, no, I think that's so, um, so true, Ken. It's, it's always tragic when the lens that we see things through is the failed end of a situation where investors are, are unhappy and feeling that they were, you know, not properly informed. Um, and yet, as you say, I think every investor has a responsibility um, to inform themselves and to review those very key records, um, which they are relying on really for their, their, their savings. This is all good stuff. And I think, I think a lot of it is, is very sensible, but in day-to-day -day activities, we tend to forget about them and set them aside. And I think those are very wise words. Uh, some of them are, are simple, but they're very wise. And, and we tend to overlook some of that stuff from, uh, from time to time. And so uh, on that note, uh, I'd like to thank you, Ken and Roseanne, for joining us on this podcast and offering your insights to our listeners. I'd also like to thank our listeners for their time. And I hope they found the discussion interesting. This is the first podcast in the CIPF podcast series, so stay tuned for the next podcast to be posted on CIPF's website. Also, we welcome your feedback. Drop us a line at 1-866-243-6981 to let us know what you think and if there's a topic you'd like to hear more about. I'm Martin Dingo. Thank you again for joining us today. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social media to stay up to date on all CIPF podcasts. More information about the speakers and what we discussed today can be found in the show notes. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute advice of any kind. Thank you for listening.